ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, Kirsty Melville here with The History Listen and I'm coming to you from Gukacha country in the East Kimberley. Now, I've got a question for you. What do you see when you hear the phrase mail-order bride? You're just seen as another Filipino woman who arrived here and married an Australian. What do you say to people when they say she must be a gold digger? From the 1970s, hundreds of thousands of Filipino women married abroad, with many settling in Australia. This forever changed the face of our country, creating a sizeable chunk of kids born to an Australian father and Filipina mother. But these Filipina women had to battle a sticky caricature, the mail-order bride. You might remember it being applied to women like Rose Porteous, Rose Hancock, or the nameless Filipina brides on Australian screens. Producer Alan Whedon is a product of this history. After the tragic death of his mother, Jesusita, he wanted to trace her story, which revealed a great southern migration. In this episode of the History Listen, Alan goes in search of the Filipinas beneath the veil. Mum didn't want to do another round of chemo. She was simply sick of being sick. My lungs is already damaged after my first radiotherapy. It's all chemo, so can you imagine? It started 2018, so my body is really, really very tired now. What are you most afraid of? I'm not afraid, because I know this one is going to get me. But I just feel sad that uh, I know it's going to happen. But I just feel so sad about it. My mother, Jesusita Kerobinis Whedon, died in 2022 after 15 years of living with breast cancer. After she died, I retreated from the world. My breakfast consisted of Twix bars, and my days were spent sitting on the couch, wearing Mum's pink polka dot thermal socks, staring into space. For most of my life, Mum and I were a team. My dad, also named Alan, died when I was 10. After Mum's death, the world kept turning, but I was still in a state of suspended animation floating between concentric circles of grief. So what got me off the couch was wanting to understand Mum more before she became Mum. I began thinking about our life together and the ways in which my early life mirrored a stereotype. Growing up, Filipino men in my life were absent. In their place were our Australian dads, men of Anglo or European descent. I can see in my mind's eye these men at a backyard barbecue, scattered on fold-out chairs with a stubby in hand, while our Filipina mums were doting on us 
or peeling back layers of aluminium foil, protecting another rice dish. Around me were my cousins and family friends of a similar age, all of us Eurasian with Filipina mums. One of my sisters, she said, what are you waiting for? This man is so interested to you. Why, why can't you not decide? At that time, your dad is starting sending me allowance too. I said, how come you decided with me? You know, how, how did you believe me? It's only a letter. He said, I know I can tell that you are a genuine person. That's what he told me. But your dad just, every other day, he used to ring me and, you know, really interested. So that time, oh, okay, I decided to come here. Can I get you to state your full name? Age? In 2018, when her cancer came back, I knew I had to get mum on tape. And the more I delved into her history, the more I realised the conditions that brought mum and dad together weren't just a fluke. I kept thinking about a line in one of the books I read after mum died, which said, migrations don't just happen, they're produced. So for me to trace mum's story, I needed to trace a great migration. One that ushered Australia into Technicolor. The policy of the Australian government is quite clear. There is no discrimination as regards geographic or religious or racial origin. Filipinos have been in Australia from at least the 19th century. But it wasn't until the Whitlam government's formal end of the White Australia policy in 1973 that brought Filipinos back. In a year, Australia accepts about 3,000 migrants from the Philippines. But within a month of the new quotas for 1985-86 being announced, the embassy in Manila was swamped by 56,000 people inquiring about work in Australia. Mum became part of this diaspora in 1991. But as it turns out, Australia wasn't her first choice. One of my best friends in uni, she said, oh, don't go there. Because only, the, only desperate people go there. But I said, I'm already desperate. <laughs> but I said, why? Because, you know, the people there are ex-convicts. What were the countries you wanted to go to? At the time, US, yeah, US, because there's so many Filipinos there, and you know. But Australia was popular also during that time in the Philippines, especially Sydney, but I don't know much about Melbourne. In the immediate decades after World War II, the Philippines was one of Southeast Asia's leading economies. But in the 1970s, it became known as the sick man of Asia. And by the time mum was an adult, armed with a university degree, the push factors for emigration were all too present. Uh, I think 1983, I finished uni. I started this campaign, but I can see that there's no future either. There's no chance of improving life. And the constraints to improving your life in the Philippines weren't just economic. President Ferdinand Marcos imposed martial law in 1972, plunging the democratic Philippines into an autocracy. How would you describe your rule at present, sir? Constitutional authoritarianism. 
The 60s and the 70s were actually the most difficult decades in terms of progress and prosperity in the Philippines due to the Marcos dictatorship. This is Melba Marginson, who was part of the Philippines National Democratic Movement, working to oust the Marcos dictatorship. The whole country experienced so much hardships, poverty, inequality, and human rights abuses. So many later on in the 80s would leave the Philippines in their own volition, but systematically the government itself, the Marcos government, of course used exporting people outside of the Philippines. In the 1970s, Marcos decided that exporting labour was the best way to provide for Filipinos instead of the state using employment or offering decent welfare. So it was an entire apparatus that literally manufactured migrants to work abroad. This is Robin Magalit Rodriguez, a Filipina-American scholar and activist. I discovered her work when I dived into heaps of Philippines-related books after Mum died. And in one tatty, dog-eared book, Robin explained how Marcos's labour policy survived, even after a people power revolution toppled his rule. After the fall of the dictatorship in like the 1980s, where we really actually have it articulated as Filipino migrant workers as the Bagong Bayani or the new heroes of the Philippines. And you do see a great expansion of labor migration from the Philippines in this moment. You start to see women migrating in numbers that they hadn't before and now in occupations that they had not been migrating to work in in the past. But creating a new hero only partly explains why more Filipinas were emigrating. There was another thing at play. Marriage. In the 1980s, there was a rise of the introduction agency, linking Filipina brides to grooms in developed countries around the world, including Australia. Consider it a different kind of people brokerage. Instead of construction workers or maids, it was brides. By the 1990s, these introduction agencies, this new industry, it created a new Australian phrase, the Filipina mail-order bride. Filipino bride. Filipino wives. Filipino women. Filipino, Filipino women. women. Asian girls, attractive Asian ladies. Filipino girls. I mean, you can call them Filipinos, whatever you like. The so-called mail-order marriages are arranged by introduction agencies in the Philippines. who commonly charge foreign men several hundred dollars to be introduced to a Filipino woman. Most of the women recruited for marriage come to Australia, and it's now estimated that some 23,000 Filipino mail-order brides live in Australia. But I learnt mum and dad's courtship wasn't that stereotype. They were introduced through a mutual friend and spent a year writing letters to each other before mum decided to pull up stumps and move to live with dad in Australia. So... What were your first impressions of Dad one year? Because you didn't, you didn't meet him until he came over. Yeah, yeah. And did you marry straight away? How, how long? No, no. We did not get married. After three years, we got married, I think. That was. By the time they married in 1993, it's not like Mum and Dad would have been ignorant about the stereotype. After all, 
At this time, mail-ordered bride meant Asian, and Asian meant Filipina. And the fact these brides were Filipina was no accident. And I remembered in the 60s and 70s, we were just wondering why all of a sudden Filipino women were winning Miss Universe and different pageants, Miss International, Miss Asia Pacific. And we realized that Imelda Marcos, the wife of the then dictator, was actually actively promoting the Filipino women in those beauty contests. You know, lots of meanings start to get attached to the Filipino woman, right? Whether it's the figure of the migrant woman or the figure of the, the beauty queen or the figure of the sex worker. All of these representations of her were all deployed as part of an economic strategy on the part of the Philippine state. And they promoted Filipino women as not only beautiful, but religious, Catholic for most, subservient, you know, wanted to please their husbands or their partners. So that ideal picture of a wife or a partner was really actively promoted globally. Mum wasn't the only one to marry abroad in her family. My auntie Salome married a Japanese man and moved to Tokyo, and my auntie Adelina married an Australian. She ended up in Melbourne, and it was Mum who played the matchmaker in that one. Of course, their stories are unique and far more complex than the stereotype, but isn't every story? In fact, before I left, some of my comrades in the Philippines were saying, uh, oh, you, you might be taken as one of the mail-order brides. And I said, well, what's the mail-order bride? Melba Marginson wasn't a Filipina pining for a life abroad. In the Philippines, she was a teacher and activist fighting for the return of democracy. After meeting her future husband at an education conference in Australia and settling here with him, Melba was pretty shocked to discover that, yep, she got tagged as the mail-order bride. I was just walking in the street and the guy approached me and said, Hi, do you have a partner? And I said, yes, I'm married. Why? You know, oh, well, then you, do you have a sister? I mean, the accessibility of the Filipino woman to the Anglo or Australian, because they're not all Anglos, um, men, was very visible. Even in the Filipino community, I noticed that. They don't even ask you, oh, what's your educational attainment, etc., etc. You're just seen as another Filipino woman who arrived here and married an Australian. There was no understanding who you are. You're all back to zero. And this perception of Filipinas as perpetually available brides would seep into the Australian media. So in the 80s and 90s, there was also a lot of media portrayals about Filipino women and embodying almost two kind of dichotomous archetypes. This is Christina Kino, a second-generation Filipina-Australian researcher. So the Filipino woman is pitiable versus the Filipino woman is predatory. 
And so you don't see that the main motivation for a Filipina in accepting one of these marriages is to escape from a low standard of living, from poverty perhaps. What do you say to people when they say she must be a gold digger? I mean, when people talk about you, you're the last one to know, and they would never say it in front of you. So by the time it gets back to me, I just shrug it off and I say, well, food for thought. When I was little, the most visible Filipina in Australian public life was Rose Porteous, previously known as Rose Hancock, the third wife of mining magnate Lang Hancock, Gina Reinhardt's dad. I remember watching Rose on telly and I sensed, even as a kid, a stereotype. That of the gold-digging Filipina bride. And besides Rose Hancock, there were other portrayals of the Filipina in the Australian media. Like Cynthia, the outback Australian Filipina bride who appears in MGM's The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. The Cynthia character is hapless, hypersexualized, and absurd. And if you haven't seen the film, she's the woman in a zebra print leotard up on the bar shooting ping pong balls out of her nether regions. Oh, you can't do that with a ping pong ball. You want them back? The way they portrayed her was just so slapstick that she was a previous prostitute and that in just the short time that she was shown in the picture, she was constantly screaming, you know, this harsh, high-pitched voice and saying Filipino curse words. Can you imagine? So it was just so negative. When we saw that scene, we really walked out of the cinema. The next day, I immediately sent out a complaint. And the, the answer was by the director is that you don't know how to take a joke. But for some Filipinas, being another disposable bride wasn't just a gag. This perception at times led to tragic consequences. A mother mourns her murdered daughter in a scene that's become distressingly familiar for Australia's Filipino community. I arrived in July 1989. By around February 1990, there were three women that were killed in Melbourne. So Henerosa Boncodine, and then we found Nanette Villani, whose decomposing body was found in her flat by around August. And then Mila Dark's body was found And that really sparked outrage amongst us. Mary Lou Orton came to Australia 12 years ago to start a new life. Last month, she met a brutal death. Her life mirrored the experience of many Filipino women in this country. Her death adds new urgency to a community's frequently unheard calls for help. When we all brought them together, there were 18 murders and two disappearances of Filipino women. And out of the 18, there were two children killed. And that sort of really enhanced our campaign to protect Filipino women because they were not just being victims of domestic violence, but were murdered and some have disappeared. During the 1990s, Melba and others were trying to raise awareness of the circumstances behind the abuse and killings of these Filipinas. In terms of power relationship, it was the use of procurement, purchase, 
the women are poor, and so they wanted to leave the country. So the first world, third world power dynamics was there. The level of violence towards Filipina brides was so great that in 1995, the Australian Human Rights Commission launched a study into this phenomenon. The resulting book led to a greater public awareness of the power imbalance faced by Filipina women. But when I was a kid, I couldn't understand how these power dynamics played out among some of the Filipina women in my community. Now that I think about it, the signs were there. There'd be one auntie who'd suddenly move in with a friend, or those Filipinas in mum's social circle who ended up going back home. And there were some women I remember who barely even mentioned their Australian husbands. My name is Emma Valenzuela. I'm 60 years old with two kids, all grown-ups. One is 27 and one is 38. Back in the Philippines, Emma and my mum became close friends. They met working in the Manila paper mills, the home of the Manila folder. Emma was one of the first of mum's friends to move to Australia via marriage in the late 1980s. My first impression was he's quiet, he seems sincere. He's not good looking, but he's not bad. He started with his money. That's the first thing I noticed because he, he never took me out to a nice, nice restaurant and that. Before meeting her Australian husband, Emma had left her Filipino partner. He was violent. They had a child together. And so Emma began trying to find work that would support herself and her infant daughter, Abigail. She ended up working in the Mabini, a Manila nightlife district catering to Westerners, where the wages were a pittance. And one night, she serves a drink to an Australian man called Alan. She was drawn to him. And I said to myself, if this one person will get me out of this job, I said, I'll leave the place. And if he offered the marriage, I'll go. So what happened is he was there for three months and there's no sex involved. And that's what amazed me. I was like, this guy is not after one thing only. He said, do you want to go to Australia? I said, yeah. So by September, I came to Australia with Abigail. Before they married, Alan had met Emma's little girl. And it seemed to Emma that he'd be good with kids. But once they got to Australia, things didn't pan out as she'd hoped. I think it's just your luck to meet a good husband. It just happens that I met an asshole, you know? Four months into marriage and life in Australia, Alan started complaining about Abigail. The toddler's crying at night. Emma's attempts to soothe her. He said that if you don't send her back home, she will ruin our relationship. I, I, I was like, I was stabbing in my heart, and I, I said to myself, you asshole, because you, if I knew this is what I'm gonna, this is what's gonna be like, I shouldn't come at all. Alan gave Emma an ultimatum, forcing her to choose between him and her baby. He handed Emma two plane tickets to the Philippines, one for her and one for Abigail. Abigail's was one way only. I, I was like, oh my God, I was hurt. So Emma had no other option but to leave Abigail behind with her mother, 
Abigail's granny in the Philippines because Emma had a plan to get her daughter back. And then in my mind I said, I'm going to work, 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 work and then bring my daughter back and my mom, and then leave him. So what I did, I work here 16 hours a day, I promise. In the factory, eight hours. In hotel, eight hours. Five days a week, I even have a weekend job. After two years of working a seven-day week, Emma had saved enough money to bring Abigail back to Australia to live. I was like so happy. This is it. We're going to have a good life. And Alan the asshole? Well, he didn't stick around long enough for Emma to leave him. Emma married again, and her son Antonio was born in 1996. By then, the Filipino mail-order bride industry had started to wane. Spousal migrations became more regulated. Filipina-Australian researcher Christine Aquino. Because of the marriage breakdowns of a good proportion of these migrant families. Along with a number of marriage breakdowns like my auntie Emma's, there were other factors that helped drive the decline in Filipina mail-order brides to Australia. The Philippines had begun banning the formal introduction agencies, and there were changes in Australia too. A number of people do enter into relationships for the purpose of migration entry. In the late 90s, the Howard government tightened spousal and family immigration programs and uh, measures to address uh, this particular difficulty, uh, in our view, are absolutely essential. And look, I know we don't exactly hear about Filipina mail-order brides these days, but the gold-digging, sexually subservient beauty pageant winner, all these stereotypes of Filipinas, still linger. I definitely think it still exists, that exoticization of Asian women, but as well Filipina women. But we can't forget that there has been historically important work done by the first generation to counter the stigma. We we Filipino women, we've come from histories of fighters and women who stood up for liberty and freedom. and, And yet here, we were like the docile, subservient women. And so I was constantly trying to bring back the dignity of the Filipino woman. The dignity of the Filipina. The dignity I would like my Filipina mum, Jesusita, to be remembered by. She was much more than the title, Clark, that I had to put on her death certificate. She was much more than the Filipina wife of an Australian man, my father. I'm sure the complexity of mum's life is not unique. Migration, in search of a better life, is pretty much the story of post-colonial Australia. In one of our last recorded conversations before she died, I asked mum, what did she want to be when she grew up? Funny you asked me. I want to be a journalist. (laughs) It's just so funny because You know, when you were young, we were talking about you being a solicitor or being an engineer or even a nurse. But the nurse, you told me, no, mommy, you are typical Filipina. So you ended up journalism, which was my dream when I was young. Can you imagine that? Is that a coincidence or 
the blood coming through and that was my dream and you ended up being my dream. Visions of the Filipina Bride was written and produced by Alan Whedon, who dedicates this feature to his late mother, Hesusita Karabinis Whedon. The sound engineer was Tim Jenkins and the supervising producer, Michelle Rayner. Thank you to those who shared their stories with Alan. And for more reading on this chapter of Filipina Australian history, just head to the History Listen website. I'm Kirsty Melville. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.